In the smoky mountain town of Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, there is an amusement park. In many ways, it's like any other amusement park you could visit. It's got roller coasters, it's got water rides, it's got a food court where you can stuff yourself with as much cinnamon bread as you can handle. But there's something about this amusement park that makes it really different. The more you know about Dolly, the more you realize everything in the park is about Dolly. Dolly, as in Dolly Parton, the larger-than-life country music star. This is no ordinary amusement park. This is Dollywood. She has a museum there with memorabilia, letters, costumes from many, many, many of her movies. A lot of the gowns that she's worn for award shows or concert performances. You can check out one of Dolly's tour buses. And you could go in and take a look around and see the little bathtub and where she kept her wigs and the bedroom where she slept and everything. You can even wander around her childhood home. Well, a replica of it, anyway. I noticed also there's a calendar on the wall from January of 1946 with January 19th circled, which is, of course, Dolly's birthday. At Dollywood, Dolly Parton's life is on full display. That is, until you get to one unassuming little artifact tucked away on the wider grounds of the Dollywood Park. Behind a glass display case, inside a little wooden box, is something that will be locked away until Dolly's 100th birthday in 2046. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. A peek inside Dolly Parton's dream box and a look at the remarkable career that inspired it after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. If you followed pop culture at all over the last, say, 40 years, I'm going to guess that you know who Dolly Parton is. Even if you're saying, Amanda, I can't name any of Dolly Parton's songs. Well, I think that actually you can. Jolene, 9 to 5, I Will Always Love You. And today, it seems like Dolly is everywhere. Walk into any gift shop, especially those geared toward millennials. You know what I'm talking about. And you will find her likeness on greeting cards, votive candles, what would Dolly do t-shirts, with her trademark big blonde hair and winning smile, surrounded by glitter and sequins and rhinestones. Dolly is larger than life. But all of this is a pretty big contrast from a curious little artifact on the outskirts of Dollywood. In 2014, to celebrate the opening of a new resort on the property, it was announced that Dolly would be putting together a dream box, almost like a time capsule, 
Some of the items inside of this dream box are public knowledge. There is a sliver of wood from the porch of her childhood home. There is a copy of her memoir. And even the box itself has personal ties to Dolly. But one part is under wraps. A song, which will be locked away until Dolly's 100th birthday in 2046. She says that she wants to be the most known as a songwriter, that that's the way she defines herself more than a singer, more than an entertainer. She's a songwriter. This is Lydia Hamesley. She's a professor of music at Hamilton College in upstate New York, a banjo player, and author of a book on Dolly Parton's songwriting called Unlikely Angel. By last count, she was saying she had written over 3,000 songs, and somewhere over 450 of them have been recorded. Um, so that's an enormous catalog that she has. I think many of the songs she's written may never really see the light of day because she's also writing a lot for herself. She often says, songwriting is my therapy. It's the way I get things out. You know, it's better than a psychiatrist kind of idea. Lydia tells me that Dolly's songwriting life started really early. In fact, I remember reading that her grandfather once said about Dolly, that thing came here us singing. <laughs> Dolly grew up in eastern Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. Her family was poor. They had no running water and no electricity. Dolly was the fourth child out of 12. The doctor who delivered her was paid with a sack of cornmeal. So in a lot of ways, life was tough. But music was a bright spot. Her mother especially was very musical, sang ballads, you know, those old Appalachian love songs, those old ballads, um, like Barbara Allen, those sorts of songs. Dolly said once that her mother sang when she was working, when she was sitting and resting, when she was sick, when she was happy, when she was sad, like she sang all the time. Dolly fashioned her own instruments out of broken mandolin parts or piano wire. And in her memoir, she describes making a fake microphone by putting a tin can on a tobacco stick. She would set it up on the porch of their cabin and then perform for their chickens. And that actually brings us to the first item in Dolly's dream box, that sliver of wood from the front porch of her childhood home, which in some ways was her very first stage. After some time, her family noticed Dolly's talent, and in particular, her Uncle Bill, her mother's brother, who is also a musician, started to help her get early gigs on local radio and television. Around age 13, Dolly cut her first demo, which she co-wrote with Uncle Bill. And the day after she graduated from high school in 1964, she set out for Nashville. She and Bill continued to write together, and she scored some of her first hits, which were often recorded by other artists. Bill's influence on her career at this time is also reflected in the dream box. The box itself is made of chestnut wood and was actually carved by him. Dolly's career really took off in 1967 when she got a big break. And now, in color, it's the Porter Wagoner Show, starring Porter Wagoner and the Wagon Masters with Speck Rose and Dolly Parton. Dolly became part of the regular performing cast of the Porter Wagoner Show, this was like a country music variety TV show, and soon she became its star. Here's this girl singer, you know, with the big hair and the really fancy outfits and everything. So she was just this fixture. Everybody knew who Dolly Parton was. Dolly was on the Porter Wagoner show for seven years, and it was a hugely prolific time for her songwriting. 
it seemed like she was able to draw inspiration from just about anything. She was on the bus with Porter Wagner. They were touring around, and they were driving through someplace in Tennessee near a town called Dover. Dolly was looking out the bus window, and she saw the shadows of clouds passing over the ground. And in her mind, she came up with the line, The sun behind a cloud just cast a crawling shadow o'er the fields of clover. The sun behind the clouds just cast a crawling shadow o'er the fields of clover. And thought, well, that's a good line, (laughs) you know. And then she said she got to thinking, well, I should use that in a song. How do I do that? So then she thought maybe the song would be set in Dover. So she started imagining the people who might live there and what their stories might be. She came up with the idea of a young woman who was pregnant and abandoned and alone in that area and just kind of kept making the story from there. My daddy said if folks found out he'd be ashamed to ever show his pain. She says that a lot of times, and this is one example, she says when she's writing her songs, it's like seeing a movie in her mind. This is an approach that Dolly returned to again and again in her songwriting. And it was kind of a callback to those old songs her mom used to sing, those Appalachian ballad songs that really tell a story, often sometimes pretty tragic ones. But soon, despite her creative successes, Dolly began to feel penned in by the boundaries of the Porter Wagoner show. He had ultimate control over how the music was being produced and what it sounded like. So Dolly decided to make a go of it for her own. And she could not have given Porter a better parting gift. She dedicated to him what is possibly her most iconic song. But when Dolly set out on her own, she quickly discovered it was pretty tough to make a go of it. She felt that she wasn't making enough money to support all the people she needed to support for her shows. She thought, I need to attend to the business in order to become the star and the superstar that she said she wanted to be. This is when Dolly entered her crossover period. This involved acting gigs, like the movie Nine to Five, where she becomes part of a group of secretaries that take revenge on their crappy boss. She started singing a lot more pop music, a lot of the time stuff that wasn't always written by her. Maybe you know her duet with Kenny Rogers, the song Islands in the Stream. That was actually written by Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees. At one point, Dolly even hosted a short-lived variety show. This was also about the time in the 1980s when Dolly bought part of an old amusement park near her hometown and started refashioning it into Dollywood, Now, if you're wondering why an amusement park, Dolly has said that she promised herself that if she ever struck it rich, she would, quote, come back to my part of the country and do something great, something that would bring a lot of jobs into this area. And today, Dollywood is the biggest employer in its county. And today, if you go to Dollywood, you can see Dolly's story writ large. You can walk through a replica of her home and see visual representations of her songs scattered throughout. Like, for the song Daddy's Work in Boots. Obviously, there's a pair of old boots displayed prominently in the home. And actually, around this time, Dolly also returned to making the music of her childhood, too. In 1987, she released an album of bluegrass music with fellow singer-songwriters Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris. I think it was when her 
bluegrass albums came out. She said something about that she'd been waiting her whole life to be able to do music like this because this was some of the music of her heart, this, this more mountain music. She said, I had to get rich in order to sing like I was poor. Today, Dolly can pretty much do whatever she wants. She appears in movies, she guest stars on albums, she's even been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Dolly is still writing. She has pads of paper and a pencil or pen and some reading glasses now in every room of her house or the bus or the office because she gets ideas just all the time spontaneously and just jots them down. She also wrote what has been billed as her last song. That's the one that's in the dream box. Funnily enough, according to Dolly herself, there's a little bit of regret there about locking it away. In her memoir, Songteller, she says, it's just burning me up inside that I have to leave it in there. She also goes on to say that if she lives to be 100, she will be at the opening of that box. Who knows, maybe it will not be her final song after all. Still, I had to ask Lydia what she thought the song might be like. So I wouldn't dare try to predict what she's done because she can always surprise you. Um, So I can only say what I would hope she's done is because it's my favorite of the kinds of music she does, which is a song that really harkens back to her mountain roots. You know, she said about herself that 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 kind of music is in, as she calls it, her Smoky Mountain DNA. She really lives, in a sense, I think, to write songs. It's something that she would be doing, I think, if nobody even listened ever again. She would still be writing songs. You can visit Dolly's Dream Box behind its glass case at Dollywood. And if you want to learn more about Dolly's amazing songwriting, check out Lydia's book. There's also a companion playlist that will take you through each song as she's telling you the story and her interpretation of it. Super cool. Check it out. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And if you would like to learn more about anything you heard on our show today, check out our website at atlasobscura.com. I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. 
This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from. That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.